This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio with guest host Jane Brown. Libby will be back uh, later in the week on Thursday after a few days of R&R. It's V-Day in Ontario, vaccine day, after some of the first 6,000 doses of the COVID-19 Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine arrived by plane at Hamilton Airport this morning. And the first dose was given less than a half hour ago to a PSW at University Health Network. Network. We have a panel of experts joining us to talk about the rollout, which is very limited in the beginning. Epidemiologist and infectious disease specialist Dr. Alon Vaisman from University Health Network. Epidemiologist Dr. Timothy Sly, professor at the School of Occupational and Public Health at Ryerson University. And Mark Lavonin, co-chair of Canada's COVID-19 vaccine task force. Gentlemen, welcome. Good afternoon, Libby. Yep, good afternoon. Thank you. It's Jane for Libby here today. Um, No, no worries. Dr. Vaisman, the vaccine has arrived at the inoculation site. Uh, Paint a picture for us what the atmosphere is like today. Um, Well, I wasn't personally at that site, but at UHN, where the hospital we're delivering the vaccine is, uh, everyone is, of course, very interested, very excited in this being rolled out uh, very soon. So, uh, Having a plan in place, the logistics being worked out is all going to be a very big challenge. But, of course, every, many people here are excited that it has arrived. How were the workers chosen? When did they find out how many are in line today to be inoculated? You know, those kinds of things. We're all curious. I, I don't know exactly about which, how the individuals were chosen. But basically uh, what is going on is that UHN has affiliations with uh, long-term care facilities here in Toronto and individuals who work at those long care facilities are prioritized to receive the vaccine first. So for example, the first individual who received the vaccine here at UHN was a PSW who was working at one of the long term care facilities with us. So those individuals uh, are going to be the first ones who receive it. And of course, that's because there is a greater risk of transmission in long term care facilities. And of course, trans, uh, vaccinating the healthcare workers working with them will reduce that risk. How long, uh, Dr. Vaisman, is the process of the initial dosing? Uh, the, the vaccine administration itself is quite quickly is quite quick. It's just like any vaccine, right. really. Uh, after the assessment is done of the individuals to make sure that they are healthy, don't have any uh, contraindications to receiving the vaccine. Then after the injection, they're, they're all done. But in terms of the initial dosing of the first few thousand shots, uh, how long will that process take? Uh, yeah, that's a great question. Um, it'll be a little tricky to know, but it, it's expected to take a few days. Um, there's going to be some logistical questions around uh, having the, the LTC employees come to the unit and receive the vaccine. So I would imagine it's going to take several days for that to happen. Dr. Sly, how effective, in your opinion, will it be having the long-term care workers vaccinated initially, vaccinated first? Well, of course, these decisions are made on a risk basis. Uh, We're looking at, uh, from a society point of view, where can the vaccines produce the best result? The best result here being protection of the society itself, as well as protecting of the individuals. Uh, it's, um, 
The the uh, the staff in long term care homes and hospitals, of course, have been the, the number one uh, on the list for virtually any. But after we get to that point, then we've got to start thinking about whether uh, it's better to look at public interface people who would be spreading it more. Uh, you know, taxi drivers, uh, uh, um, the, the people working in 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 all kinds of industries where they're meeting up with the public, or whether it's uh, we should start cascading down from. Uh, um, the actual individuals themselves, so people in in ordinary hospital settings, people in the uh, clinics, and so on. It's a it's a it's a it's there's no clear indication. We haven't really done this kind of process before, where time is limited. But uh, it's a risk-based uh, decision. Uh, Mark Lavonin, uh, from the national perspective, do you give orders or will orders go down to the provinces as to uh, which sectors of the population should be vaccinated in priority order, or is that left up to the provinces? So uh, the vaccine task force, which I'm co-chairing, um, our, our job was to secure safe and efficacious vaccines for Canadians as soon as possible. So we have come up with the recommendations to the government to buy the seven uh, vaccines that they've entered into agreements for, of which the, the Pfizer, BioNTech and the Moderna are the first two. And so it's wonderful to see that rolled out. In terms of providing advice on who should get what vaccines when, the National Advisory Committee on Immunization comes up with uh, prioritization and recommendations. Um, the Public Health Canada works on the distribution and the rollout. And then the provinces are also involved with the distribution within the provinces and the territories. And at that stage, they will also refine those recommendations based on their own populations. So there's a number of people involved. But I think it's quite remarkable how quickly this is underway and how quickly we see the first uh, person vaccinated. It's it's also fascinating to me uh, in terms of from province to province. So Quebec, they've done it a different way to start, which is how we initially thought it was going to roll out in Ontario. But with the, the freezer uh, requirements for the Pfizer vaccine, they decided to give it to long-term care workers here first. In Quebec, special freezers have been delivered to two long-term care residences, one in Montreal, one in Quebec City. Um, it was... The, is that a much larger logistical challenge than what we're doing here in Ontario? Well, the, so the rollout of the vaccines is a combined federal, provincial, territorial responsibility, and each province will tailor it to their own unique circumstances, and it will depend on the freezer capacity. As, you, as we all know and have heard, these have to be stored at uh, minus 70 degrees Celsius, which is uh, no small challenge, but at the same time, those capabilities exist, and people have ramped that up. So I think from a province by province or territory by territory uh, implementation plan, they will look at their populations, the vulnerable groups, the, 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 those who um, are high priorities, and there will be some amendments and choices made that will vary from province to province, uh, though everybody will get to the same place in the end, I think. You're listening to Zoomer Radio's Fight Back. Jane for Libby, along with our esteemed panel of experts, Dr. Alon Vaisman, Dr. Timothy Sly, and Mark Lavonin. This is the time to get your questions in. If you have any questions about the COVID-19 vaccine, 
uh, the efficacy of it, uh, when you might have the opportunity to be able to be inoculated, now is the time to call 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. As you likely know, only the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine has been approved by Health Canada, uh, but there are other vaccine candidates. Uh, Mark Livonen, I know that's right up your alley. Where are we in that process? Which one do you think is going to be next? Well, I'm not sure which one will be next. That's up to uh, Health Canada and the approval process. But I I will say that we have uh, recommended and the government has procured seven different vaccine candidates across four different technology platforms. Um, If you think about it, at the time we made our recommendations, we weren't sure what vaccines would be licensed when. It was terrific news and we're all delighted when the the first two mRNA vaccines had 90% 90% plus efficacy, that's a great sign. Um, ones along the way include the, uh, the Janssen from Johnson & Johnson and the AstraZeneca, which are both viral vector vaccines. They carry the protein. And there are also vaccines, what we call protein subunit. That would be the Novavax and the Sanofi GSK, which are um, going to enter clinical trials a little bit later. And following that is the Canadian one, which is Metacago, a Quebec-based company that uses virus-like particles grown in tobacco plants. So it is a portfolio approach. It was a portfolio approach in terms of reducing our risk and and, uh, seeing what we might be able to bet on and what might come through. And so um, the Pfizer BioNTech, the Moderna are there. Uh, I think the, uh, the Johnson & Johnson and the AstraZeneca are under review, and uh, uh, science will rule the day, and I'm quite confident that Health Canada, when they make the decision, it will be based on sound science, and as I say, these things are under review, and we'll see what comes about in the next little while. Thank you for that uh, concise but comprehensive answer. That is uh, great information. Let's go to Bruce in Markham. Bruce, hi, you're on Zoomer Radio. Hi, I think you just answered it, but my question was, why are these uh, great as a vaccine, but why are they uh, out so early when they said it would be two two years before a safe and reliable vaccine was uh, found based on past vaccines, measles? You're um, absolutely right. They certainly yeah. did seem to move up the timeline. Um, uh, Mark Livonen, did you want to take that? Well, I'll just say the whole thing is remarkable. I mean, I gave a talk back in May when I talked about typical vaccine development is 10 to 15 years. The fastest ever was four to five years for mumps and Ebola. Uh, some infectious diseases we do not have a vaccine for. Think of HIV, AIDS, uh, mm-hmm. malaria, hepatitis C. And this was 12 to 18 months. And at that time, I thought these are different scenarios that may have some probability attached to them. But what will, what will happen? And, and I will tell you, at that point, I really thought the 12 to 18 months was really a stretch. Um, remarkably, as months have gone by, we've gotten closer and closer. And the fact that this will actually be done in under 12 months, remarkable, amazing. Those are the words that, uh, that come to mind. And what's, what I can assure people is there's been shortcuts taken in terms of the steps to do the work. I mean, how do you go from 10 to 15 years to 12 months? That's remarkable. But there have not been shortcuts taken in terms of the, of the work that had to be done. Uh, it's just an incredible uh, collaboration, partnership between industry, academia, the government, 
the science, all of these things, everything remarkably all went in the right direction so far. So I'd far, like, so good. I'd like to get the, the reaction to the same question about the timeline and how it has been abbreviated almost exponentially from our epidemiologists and infectious disease specialists, Dr. Vaisman and Dr. Sly. Dr. Vaisman, your thoughts on that? Yeah, it's absolutely incredible how quickly things were done. And, and of course, there's going to be concerns in the public about whether the vaccine is safe because it was approved so quickly. But based on the data we have so far, and considering the effects COVID has on society and on individuals, the approval was made on the basis of the risks. Any kind of risk associated with the vaccine is far outweighed by the benefits of the vaccine and the reduction of COVID and the risks associated with COVID. So I think it's important for people to realize that, that these approvals and these rapid approvals are all based on the facts on the ground and what's going on in Canada, how many people are dying of COVID and how many people have long-term consequences associated with COVID. Dr. Sly? Yes, absolutely. When you look at the expertise and experience and the focus of all of these pharmaceutical companies and the background academic work and the research work, the focus has been tremendous, global. We've probably never seen such a concentration of focus in a previous aspect. Even the mad cow disease didn't promote quite as much activity. So it just shows you what can be achieved when there's enough effort and energy and motivation. The very first COVID-19 vaccine has been given in Ontario. A special program here with our panel of experts, Dr. Sly, Dr. Vaisman, and Mark Lavonin, co-chair of Canada's COVID-19 Vaccine Task Force. It's vaccine day in Ontario. The very first COVID-19 vaccine was given in this province uh, just after 12 o'clock to a PSW, um, a personal support worker who works in a long-term care home. Most appropriate, for sure, given... uh, the tragedy and devastation of COVID-19 in our nursing homes. On the line with me, epidemiologist and infectious disease specialist Dr. Alan Vaisman from University Health Network, epidemiologist Dr. Timothy Sly at Ryerson University, and Mark Lavone and co-chair of Canada's COVID-19 Vaccine Task Force. We will get to your phone calls here. Let's go to Barry in North York. Thanks for waiting, Barry. Go ahead. You're welcome. Good afternoon. Nice, colorful, but outfit, by the way, Jean. Oh, thank you. You're watching the the streaming video at zoomerradio.ca. Yes. <laughs> thank you. Um, the uh, As you know, Libby has a one-minute kind of FYI from time to time, and I heard the other day that they had discovered that a number of people who have COVID-19 are deficient of, co- of vitamin D. So my question is to the experts is, if you took vitamin D, how much would that help preventing COVID-19? Very good question. Uh, let's go to Dr. Vaisman. Uh, yeah, vitamin D has been studied in a wide variety of illnesses, including COVID-19, but there isn't uh, yet any definitive evidence to show that taking the vitamin D supplementation either treats the, the disease or has um, good efficacy against prevention of covid so it's not uh, currently part of the standard recommendations for um, you know, infection control practices or otherwise to prevent uh, COVID acquisition. Of course, vitamin D has other benefits unrelated to infectious diseases. Right, Dr. Sly, I mean, certainly if you were to take vitamin D, you should chat with your doctor about it first, but it, it comes in international units. What is the recommended daily dose? 
Uh, we'd have to talk to a nutritionist about that. It varies a little bit, but I will say that what Dr. Vaisman has said has been absolutely right. The the evidence for taking it as a, an additional protective is very weak and not very valid at all. However, uh, as in most nutri- nutrients and vitamins, uh, it seems that if you if you run into a deficit situation, that's not advisable. So make sure it's a balanced diet with all the bits and pieces there. But superfoods don't uh, don't think there's a, there's anything out there that's going to help in this case. I want to ask all three of you. Um, we know in Ontario that long-term care workers, those who work in other high-risk settings, will be vaccinated. Are being vaccinated first. Uh, which group, which population group would be next in Ontario? Uh, Mark Lavonin, can I put that to you? Well, I, I could speak in general terms. I mean, we know that the um, those in long-term care homes, the um, the workers and, and the patients are at the top of the list. Um, healthcare workers overall will be there. Uh, people um, over uh, over 70, but starting with those over 80 and moving down in five-year increments, so from 80 to 75, uh, to 70. Those will be uh, among the uh, top priority and um, essential workers. And then a shortly shortly thereafter as well, those with comorbidities, younger people with comorbidities would also be uh, among the first to be vaccinated. Dr. Vaisman, uh, that sound about right to you? Yes, absolutely. That's uh, that's how the uh, National Immunization Council of Canada, NACI, that's how they've also outlined the, um, the strategy for vaccination. People have high risk of severe illness, people at high risk of transmitting to those with high with a risk of illness and those who are providing essential service would be the, the top priorities after that. Dr. Sly, I was speaking with my dad on the weekend uh, and he's primarily at home, isolated other than his walks and going to the grocery store. And he said he would prefer uh, if people, workers at Loblaws and, and, and in high risk settings potentially would be vaccinated before him as an older person. That's certainly a, a, an excellent perspective, yeah. And this is probably one of the reasons why we see Brampton, for example, in Ontario, as a very high position. It's not nothing to do with uh, the backgrounds of people. It's to do with the, the jobs that they actually do. They are interfacing with the public on a daily basis with the numerous members of the public. So to stop spread from a, from a society point of view, sure, we look at who, where the vaccines can have the maximum effect. Let's get back to the phones. If you have a question uh, for our epidemiologists and infectious disease specialist, along with uh, Mark Lavonin, who is actually the co-chair of the COVID-19 Vaccine Task Force, give us a call, 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-744-740. Gabriella in Richmond Hill, go ahead. Hi, good afternoon to all of you. Beautiful show. My question is, I did take vaccine uh, for flu shot for many years. I work in the hospital more than two years. But when I used to take a vaccine for the flu shot at work, I had the reaction. One day I happened to be at my family doctor. I took the, the vaccine from my family doctor's office. I didn't get no reaction. I asked my doctor. He didn't have no answer for me. And uh, I was wondering why. And now with this new vaccine came out for the COVID, uh, I was talking to my specialist. They told me they need to have two shots, and which I didn't know. But he said, oh, we have 500 tests and nobody, no reaction. I said, yeah, I do well, healthy people, but I am a senior. I have a few health issues. What might be my case? 
And he said, can I tell you? I said, well, I'm glad to have. I want to know more about it before I'm going to have taken the, 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 you know, for the, for the COVID-19. Yeah. Uh, but I'm glad that they made something, but they have to tell us more about it. What uh, does for us, he told me the doctor, is here, it stays. It's not going to go away like any other infection we have, which is there, I'm sure there are thousands kinds. And we have to just get used to it okay, and be but careful. Let, let me put your comments and your concerns uh, to our experts. Uh, Mark, Mark Lavonin, uh, what about that? I mean, we, we did do a show on that last week when there were those two adverse reactions in the UK to the Pfizer vaccine. Uh, what, what about the concern with reactions? So I will make a general comment, but I would defer to the uh, the medical experts on the, on the panel. Um, so there have been some reactions as reported in the UK, and the general recommendation is that if anybody has any allergies to any of the ingredients in the vaccines, they should not be taking the vaccines. Dr. Vaisman. Yes, that's exactly it. Um, and the contents of the vaccine are not uh, really new items. Uh, it's the mRNA, which is the newest item, but it's also an organic material found in our cells that's compounded uh, with some lipids that are used to stabilize the vaccine. But um, if we're recognizing this person's previous history of allergy, she just had a careful conversation with her care, uh, her clinical team to decide whether the vaccine is right for her. But it, at this point, we don't have any reason to believe that there's any connection between having previous reactions to the flu vaccine is associated with a, va- with a reaction to this vaccine. So it is likely, uh, given that, that information that's been provided, that it is safe to undergo the vaccination. Uh, Dr. Sly, uh, how concerned should people be about a potential reaction to the COVID vaccine? Uh, that's, Dr. Vaisman's response is, is spot on. Everybody is extremely sensitive about the, uh, the optics here, uh, even though the, the risks apparently don't seem to be uh, 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 much concern at all. But the, just in case, in case there are any, uh, any uh, uh, reactions or untoward uh, side effects, we need to be uh, very careful of that. So protecting, precaution, uh, let's see how it goes. Those people perhaps should take a different uh, uh, vaccine when it comes available, if, if they're in that category. But the, the medical advice is, is, is right on here, yes. Just a few more minutes. I want to get to all your calls. Let's go to Paul in Lake Erie. What would you like to ask our experts? Hi, Jane. You do a good job. Thank you. Um, one, I got three quick questions, and then I'll leave you to work on it. Where is this vaccine coming from? It seems like it's the media is making it like it's being skulked in in the middle of the night by armed guard. I'm just curious where it's coming from. Why aren't we producing it in Mississauga or something? Uh, number two, um, what's in the what's in the vaccine? I've heard people had allergies, like for instance, an A allergy, and you can't take it. Right. And number three was. Do you put 70, minus 70 Celsius in your arm, uh, the, the temperature it's being held at? Thank you. You do a wonderful job. Okay. I'll wait for the answers. Thank Bye-bye. you, Paul. We did address the allergy concern. So let's talk about uh, and ask Mark Lavonin where the Pfizer vaccine is coming from. And uh, what about that minus 70 a solution going into your arm? Yes, so, uh, so on the um, the distribution, what uh, what we saw, what was reported, it actually had a, a bit of a convoluted route. It went from Belgium to Cologne, Germany, and then it was flown into Louisville, Kentucky, uh, and then through um, UPS. It was then uh, flown from there to 14 different depots across Canada, 
which is then moved from there to the various places where it will, where immunizations will first occur. So uh, a number of steps along the way and would have to maintain that minus 70 degree cold chain all along the way as well. So it took quite a bit of effort to get that done, but experts um, and people are, are uh, it, the results are occurring. People are getting it done and it's it's a marvelous tribute to all of those involved. Uh, in terms of when it's administered, it, it will be uh, thawed before it goes into somebody's arms, um, so it won't go in at minus 70. It'll be more as a, a temperature uh, a temperature level, uh, sorry, a refrigerator level uh, when it's administered, so it won't be minus 70 at that time. Okay, but but a fair question. I thought that was a good question. Yes. Let's go to Joan in North York. Joan, go ahead. Yes, um, I know you're talking about allergies. I'm a 76-year-old that is an asthmatic. Um, I'm I'm gluten-free. I'm sensitive to many things. I can't take NSAIDs. I can't take sulfa, macrobid, and cipro um, are some of my allergies to medication. So you were saying just speak to your doctor, but I'm just thinking when doctors haven't had any experience with this medication, um, I'm just wondering what their suggestion would be like. Yes, okay, that, that's good. Let's, uh, let's uh, ask Dr. Baseman about that. They mean um, when a person has a personal history of a very high-risk reaction to previous medications or foods and they suggest to have a discussion with a physician, what they mean is to evaluate the risks of acquiring COVID individual versus the potential, uh, what seems to be currently a small risk of anaphylaxis or allergic reaction. So some individuals around the world are living in areas where very high COVID and the likelihood of acquisition is high where you would want to take the vaccine and risk the small risk of the allergic reaction. Whereas some people live in areas of the world with very low COVID prevalence where you might say, I prefer to wait a little bit while longer to see a little bit more data from other individuals before taking the vaccine. So for individuals who have a specific health concern about a contraindication to taking a vaccine, that's the kind of conversation that they're recommending physicians to have. On top of that, they will get into the very specifics of whether your reactions, what, what were the reactions to, how serious were the reactions, and were they left threatening, and then weighing that against the risk of COVID. Just a, a minute left here. Final reactions on day one of vaccine inoculation against COVID-19. Dr. Sly? One thing that really worries me, uh, Libby, is that while we're all full of hope and seeing the light at the end of the tunnel, is that we start letting our guards down, uh, and and that will be a problem. There won't be any major concern, major difference here, other than the, to the individuals themselves who are vaccinated, but to society itself. Uh, we need to keep all of those guards up for many months yet. This is too soon to, uh, to relax. Mark Lavonin. Uh, my thoughts are very similar as we've been doing, saying from the beginning, wash your hands a lot, social distance, and when you can't social distance or when you're in public places, wear a mask. And Dr. Vaisman. Absolutely. I agree with Dr. Sly's comments. This is not the end quite yet. We need to continue doing everything we know that's right and to prevent the disease from transmitting. It's the first day of a long journey, that's for sure. Thank you all for joining us here on Zoomer Radio. Thank you, Jane. Thank you. Thank you. Epidemiologist and infectious diseases specialist Dr. Alan Vaisman and Dr. Timothy Sly, along with Mark Lavone and co-chair of Canada's COVID-19 vaccine task force. And remember, uh, if you think later in the day about a comment you'd like to leave, you can do so on our Fight Back voicemail anytime at 416-367-9636. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. 
heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.